This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And happy Thursday afternoon to you. Very glad to be part of the show today. Uh, shortly on the program, a company that owns a vegetable farm and packing facility just outside of Perth has been fined $15,000 over an incident in which a worker's arm was injured when it was trapped in a conveyor belt. And shortly catching up with Sally North, who's the acting WorkSafe Commissioner. Also, today, a little later in the hour too, we'll talk about sandalwood because the state and federal governments have got together putting in some funding to the tune of $600,000 into the WA wild sandalwood sector over the next three years. You'll find out how it's going to be spent and what it aims to do just after news headlines at half past 12 today. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. Bittersweet is the expression being used by some Aboriginal people to yesterday's announcement that the state government has agreed to pay a bit more than $180 million to eligible workers and surviving family members who are taking part in stolen wages legal action. There's recognition that there was slavery and that our families worked hard to help build WA. You'll hear more from Angela Kickett and her husband, Justin, shortly. They're part of that class action. Vicky Antelatis represents Shine Lawyers, the legal team that's been fighting on behalf of Aboriginal people for about three years. Uh, oh, look, we're very proud of this result. And it really is a victory for the um, thousands of First Nations people that we represent. You know, it really is a great result for workers and their descendants who really have suffered intergenerational disadvantage because of the legislation that was in place in the state over many decades. Already on the tax line, uh, people saying, well, what about the Aboriginal people who suffered this indignity before this payment is finally made? They won't know. Many have passed on. Well, look, no amount of financial compensation can ever... Uh, you know, bring to bear or acknowledge the suffering of of the people. But um, it's one way of, you know, moving forward. But the descendants of the workers will be eligible to join and register for this settlement. Vicky Antelatis from Shine Lawyers with Joe Trilling. The lead claimant in this stolen wages legal action case is Kimberly Stockman, an artist, Mervyn Street, who worked on stations for most of his life and wasn't paid a full wage until he was in his 30s. That's because between the 1930s and 70s, it was okay for the state government to withhold up to 75% of an Aboriginal person's wage. Mirawong elder David Newry gave evidence during the class action on behalf of family members who lived and worked on Ivanhoe and Newry stations in the East Kimberley. He says yesterday's announcement gave him a sense of relief. Well, I mean, I can't get any more joyous about it, you know, and, and I think um, it's about time that they um, recognise something like this for the hard work that our people have put, you know, mm. How- well, including myself probably, and, and for to really point out that um, our people were the backbone of the cattle industry to do with the effort that our people have, have put 
and through hardship, you know, like um, our people were just basically treated like um, slaves. Has it been difficult for you to be part of this court case process? You know, the the hardest part for me was talking about my family, how they've been treated in, in court, you know, where one of my father brother got tied to a tree and got whipped for not hopping on a horse that morning because he was um, really sick in the stomach, you know? Mm. And and that kind of thing, I've, that sort of information was really um, hard for us to tell other people about it, you know, especially in court. And, you know, some of the people that have waited since the time when the, the lawyers came to, when they gave us that information about this um, class action thing, um, few of them have passed away now, you know, and hoping that that be some of the recipient about these um, royalty that people are getting, you know. Like last year, one of my, my, my mother passed away, or year before last, sorry, and she's not won't be able to get what she deserved, you know. Yeah. It's 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 good in one way, but then it's like it's um something that um feel a bit sad too in a way that where people were just about to get these things but just couldn't make it to the end, you know. It's a sad thing for me that I know that my my people deserve this more, you know, my parents actually and my uncles and yeah, well all my family, the elderly family. They were the one that should have been receiving a lot of these things. It's a really mournful feeling for me, really. Just so that they're not here with us now to hear this kind of news, you know. Mirawong Elder David Newry is speaking to Alice Marshall about the news that broke late yesterday. The state government is set to pay more than $180.4 million to settle the stolen wages class action where thousands of Aboriginal Australians had their wages withheld. And it's worth noting legal costs total $15.4 million. So if you take that off the top, the government is currently agreeing to pay around $165 million to eligible Aboriginal workers and family. The settlement amount and conditions are subject to federal court approval. You can read through the finer details on the ABC website. Just search ABC News Stolen Wages. 11 past 12. Angela and Justin Kickett are part of the class action along with some of their family members. Like David Newry, they had a mixed reaction to the news of the settlement. There's relief. Um there's excitement but there's sadness simply because my mum and her brothers are not here to be able to enjoy that or feel like they've been recognised. They're not alive anymore so we certainly feel you know, a sigh of relief um, that there is the recognition but there's sadness. There's definitely sadness there and that's I guess where we, where we sit with things. Yeah. It's interesting you use the word recognition because there's two aspects to this. There's the money, but there's the apology on November the 28th in Parliament. If we take the latter first, how important is that for you? The apology is an important piece for 
Australia to recognise that this happened. So when an apology happens, you're accepting that this did actually occur because unfortunately there are a lot of mistruths out there about Aboriginal people and what we went through in the past. And I think that that is certainly reflected in, I guess, Australia and the way that they react to certain things. And, you know, there was recently the voice referendum. And, you know, I think this is a way of saying, yes, this did actually happen and we acknowledge that this occurred. On the amount, though, do you think it's enough? I don't think it will be enough. I think uh, they'll certainly have to review that. I don't think um, they've necessarily captured everyone because it also takes into account people that have passed away, uh, which people may not have been aware of prior. So I think there may be need to be a bit more funds that go in, but I'm sure they'll assess it as it, as it goes along. So, Angela, you and your husband, Justin, were both part of the court action, part of the, the class action, on behalf of your families and, and other people. Can you just paint a picture of the sort of work that your family members were doing and whereabouts in Western Australia? So my mother and her three brothers were all um, put into Maribank Mission uh, down near Katanning in WA. And they basically used to go and do farmhand work. So they'd go out, work on the farms. They'd also do home, like mum would do home duties and things like that as well. So it's like child slavery. They weren't getting paid for it. They were just, you know, pretty much told you're going to go out and work out on a farm, you're going to do this for the day, you're going to do that. And it pretty much, that was their upkeep for staying in a mission, I guess. With your mum, whereabouts did she work? From what I know, she just worked on the local farms and also just the local area within the the mission itself. I know it was very different for the boys and girls or the men and women. In your family, what what sort of work were they doing? Uh, Clearing paddocks, any sort of farm work that might be needed. Uh, Typically, it was during those those times, it was clearing paddocks. So that, that was obviously the major thing that they had back in the day was making room for crops and and things like that. I think, you know, when people look at history, I actually think they lose sight of the context of what that history actually means. And the context is you had eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, you had kids, some were adults, some were teens, but you had kids going out to work in fields and work in areas the non-Aboriginal kids were at school. They were getting an education. They were looking at how do I become employed? How do I become follow the steps of their parents or their uncles? That wasn't offered to these to the Aboriginal people. It was get out there and earn your keep in the way of you know laborious work, which I would say the non-Aboriginal kids would not do. So therefore, when you start looking at the context. Well, that means those, those kids, when they grow up, they're going to lack the, I won't say lack, but they're going to be limited to the amount of information they can pass on to their kids of what a childhood looks like, what a normal childhood looks like, virtues into how a child grows, into adolescence, into teenage years, and then becomes an adult. There's a total miss there. So that's the real context of what happens here. And... 
is the money enough? No, it's nowhere near enough because every country town I've gone to, and I've been through many, it's littered with unmarked graves of Aboriginal people that had to have um, paupers' funerals. All the families did their very, very best they could in order to bury their, bury their loved ones. So there's all these graves all over, all over Western Australia, some I'm sorry, all over Australia, some in towns, and some are in paddocks, some are in, in you know, different places as well. For me, it's only right that we you know, do our best to identify where these people uh, are laying and do the right thing and, and, and acknowledge them by putting marked graves, I suppose, or something similar, because after all, they, they were the ones that you know, cleared all this land for the farmers of today to have these prosperous industries that they talk about so openly now. It wasn't always like that. There was natural bush around and our people, our kids and our adults cleared that land so these people can have this prosperous bit of land that they now use um, even today. We're just chatting to Angela and Justin Kickett. Just out of interest, there's some fond memories from those times as well? Couldn't say for sure. The reason I can't say is that mum and all my uncles didn't talk about their time at Marybank Mission. I have had to piece their story together through talking to elders. They have been the people that have helped me piece together what mum and the uncles did because whenever I would ask, um, she would say that she didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. So it was obviously a real place of pain. How do you think they would feel if they were here today knowing that this announcement has just come out, that there's been an acknowledgement. Look, I certainly think, I feel like the trauma that they suffered through the uh, mission really moulded their lives and it had such a profound impact that um, they didn't know how to deal with their pain. They all died very, very young. We didn't get a lot of answers. We've had to search a lot of the information. Uh, we know that Mum used to escape from Marabank Mission frequently and the police in Broomhill would catch her. Uh, we know that she was on the streets of Albany for some time, um, that there was absolute poverty. I think there was an element of shame. That's why they didn't talk. Yeah, I just wish they were here to be able to tell me more. I know this still has to go to court to, for the, the settlement conclusion of, of everything, firstly to see if it's e- enough. But just on the surface of it, do you know how much your family members will actually get? Is, is that clear yet? Nothing's clear yet. I'm just reading the stories in the media where they've thrown around a figure of 16,000 around that sort of figure. But you can also read in the media that they're saying that that is subjective. So they will probably assess individuals um, to decide what they're eligible for, if they are eligible at all. There are some people in this process that have been told they're not eligible. At the start of the conversation, Angie mentioned the voice. It's not that long ago that the yes vote didn't get up. 
What do you think might be the reaction of some of the people who voted no to the news of this settlement? Uh, my, my perception is that for some of the people that voted no, there was confusion, which is understandable in the way that it was marketed. But uh, for some people who voted no, maybe they thought Aboriginal issues were just going to go away because they voted no. But the reality is, is, well, we're not. We're still here. There's just going to be other avenues that we're going to use to be able to continue the fight. And I say the fight because it's exactly what it is. This is what we do. We, we find ways of surviving, you know, Resilience. dodging, yeah, dodging yeah. the uh, obstacles and keep moving forward and going over or under or whichever way we can or whichever way we need to in order to survive. So, yeah, it's just one of those other days where we go, okay, this has happened on this day. Um, we'll keep moving forward and doing our positive best that we can do and get ready for the next phase of whatever we need to be doing. Justin's family has an amazing storyline. Um, his dad was the first Aboriginal police officer in WA. I always draw on some of the things that he talks about. He would, you know, Winston would tell us that he'd rock up to work and people would refuse to work with him because mm, wow. he was Aboriginal. Yeah. Um, but I always but use they were those. the people that paved the way for us to be able to speak today. Angela and Justin Kickett speaking to Richard Hudson about the news that the WA government has agreed to pay just over $180 million to settle a class action brought on behalf of thousands of Aboriginal Australians who had their wages withheld between 1936 and 1972. On the text, Nicola in Witchcliffe says... Regarding the Aboriginal wages, as a white person, I find it hard to accept that law firms are taking yet more money. If a white person from the 1930s onwards had up to 75% of their wages taken away for a 40-hour week, there'd be uproar. Disgraceful it's taken this much time. Cheers from Nicola. Uh, This too, uh, Belinda, I'm not across the court case, but I support reparations of stolen or withheld wages. I don't support the theory of intergenerational oppression. Otherwise, we'll have to pay a lot of money to descendants of the 19th century convicts. And this too, the ABC continues to push the Indigenous victim story. Move on or rebrand yourself, the Aboriginal Broadcasting Commission. Your thoughts on the text 0448 922 604 24 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varasketti on ABC Local Radio WA. And just put your name and location on the text 0448 922 604. 24 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Shortly an update from the ABC Newsroom and then checking weather conditions right around Western Australia. That shouldn't take too long. I think it's pretty much hot everywhere today. More from the Bureau just after half past 12. First though, a company that owns a vegetable farm and packing facility at Mandogalup, 30 kilometres south of Perth, has been fined $15,000 over an incident in which a worker's arm was injured when it was trapped in a conveyor belt. Element Brothers Proprietary Limited, trading as Element Produce, pleaded guilty to failing to ensure that dangerous parts of a machine were securely guarded. 
and was fined in the Perth Magistrates Court on Monday. Sally North is Acting WorkSafe Commissioner. Sally, can you just take us back to the time of the incident? What happened? So back in May 2019, a worker was helping another worker in the processing area which involved leaks being moved through a process for straightening and processing. And the worker saw some kind of muck in a conveyor and attempted to clear that out. And unfortunately, his arm was caught in a conveyor and another worker had to uh, pull the emergency stop and they actually needed to cut the worker free. Mm. What was the extent of the injuries? So he broke his forearm bones and also had an open wound to the arm, which required surgery. And is the worker back at work now? I'm not sure at this stage. Now, the company was fined $15,000. What's the maximum penalty that could apply in a case like this? Due to it being um, a few years ago, the maximum at the time under that regulation was $50,000. Is it enough, do you think? Is it much of a deterrent, that $15,000 fine for an incident like this? And that's one of the considerations the magistrate has when they set it on each case and they consider things like the performance of that business um, in safety and health previously and their work that they might have done to improve and all those kinds of things. And they also consider the need for deterrence for that business and other businesses. So I presume that they did think that that was the right amount in this particular case, but it is very much case by case. And Sally, have things changed then? As you said at the time, so this is back in what year was this? 2018, 2019? Yes, 2019. So the maximum penalty at that stage was $50,000. What is it today? The same or different? I would actually have to check that for a guarding breach because this is a regulation breach, but there are some very significant fines under the general duties of care available. What are the key areas of concern in this particular case? The key concern for us is that the guarding of conveyors is a really well-known hazard and the fact that people can get an arm or another body part pulled in and really severely injured or indeed limbs can be lost in conveyors so it can be extremely hazardous so it's a well-known hazard and what we would say is that it's really incumbent upon everybody that uses a conveyor to have a look at that conveyor have a look anywhere where a person's arm could be pulled in make sure that's guarded and it is a practical control and has the company now installed all the necessary safety equipment Yes, that's right. And the other part of it, and that was also um, conducted, is to make sure that if there is a need to get into machinery to clean it out, um, that there's an isolation procedure. So all the power is off and there's no hazard when cleaning um, operations are conducted. And what sort of a message does this send to other uh, operators in this field or just the, the agricultural sector in general? That uh, machinery is a really important hazard and it is important to have a look at the controls that you've actually got in place and make sure that they're as good as you need them to be. Make sure that they do meet the requirements and people's body parts can't be pulled in because the the fines um, are significant for those offences. And then after an incident like this, does WorkSafe go back and just make sure everything is now in order at this particular property? Yes, so following this incident, uh, an inspection was done and any issues that were identified requiring improvement, uh, compliance action was taken. Sally, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Acting WorkSafe Commissioner Sally North.
28 past 12. Well, let's head out to the farm now to Manjimup, where a strawberry grower started picking last week, and it sounds like things are going really well, not just with the weather conditions, uh, productivity is good too, but the other thing here is that they're using new picking and packing methods. And Paul De Silva hopes it's going to improve fruit quality and also reduce the waste on the farm. Now, the strawberries are now grown in raised beds and when picked, they go straight into punnets instead of being sent to the packing shed. Usually, we would pick the fruit into a picking tray, take it to our warehouse and then take the fruit by hand out of the tray into the punnet. Now, we are picking directly from the plant into the punnet. So that's saving, saving a lot of time which we've had two major increases in wages. So it's been able to actually cover that. So our labour costs haven't gone up because we've been able to save that 10% in speed. So it's good for us and we can keep on going, you know what I mean? It's also, if you don't touch the fruit, you don't damage the fruit. So it's everything is stem-picked. Um, stem-picked, put in the punnet, weighed, sent to our packing shed. It's cooled down, littered and sent to Woolies and Coles. And so you're maybe one of only one other strawberry producers that's that's trialling this yeah. this method. Yep, yeah. There's one other one other guy that has been doing it for years and years, and he's perfected it. And his fruit is absolutely amazing. And we're following suit. So you see this as being you know part of part of life now this moving forwards. This is how it is. We've gone from a thousand square meter shed to being able to do it in a shed that's probably only about two hundred square meters. So it's a lot of extra storage for us and we can do other things with the shed rather than having it full of people and packing. So our shed's only got six people in it. Last season we had 34. So it's been a lot more fun. And people get to go home early. Rather than sitting in the shed until midnight packing these things, we're actually able to finish at a normal time and get the fruit on the truck to Perth rather than waiting till the next day. Do you expect the season will be shorter now with this different system that you're trying? I think we'll probably get better yield because we're not damaging the fruit as much and we're not touching it and we're going to have better qualities and um, yeah we're going to be coming into an absolute bucket load of them in a couple of weeks so yeah we'll be sending them all over Australia. Majimup strawberry grower and manager at Smasher Straub, Paul De Silva speaking to Ellie Honeybone. And picking started last week and Paul says the quality is just excellent this season, which is good to hear. Just before that, you heard from Acting WorkSafe Commissioner Sally North talking about how a company that owns a vegetable farm and packing facility just south of Perth has been fined $15,000 over an incident in which a worker's arm was injured when it was trapped in a conveyor belt. And in response to that, Peter in Northampton says, who would want to be an employer, Bell? Accidents will always happen no matter what precautions are taken. Thank you for that, Peter. On the Country Hour, 28 to 1, and Ellie Colvin is here with an update from the newsroom. Thanks, Belinda. The Premier, Roger Cook, says the settling of a class action over stolen wages is an important step towards social justice. The action was brought on behalf of thousands of Aboriginal Australians who had their wages withheld by the government from the 1930s to the 1970s. The government's agreed to pay $180 million to settle the case. More than 400 people, including 
in 20 Australians have left Gaza after the Rafah crossing to Egypt was opened to civilians for the first time in more than three weeks. Palestinian officials say that 335 foreign passport holders and 76 injured Gazans have been able to leave so far. Incoming West Coast CEO Don Pike says restoring the AFL club's on-field performance across all of its sides is the most pressing issue he faces. Pike will replace Trevor Nisbet next year after the pair work through a transition period. Pike played in two premierships for the Eagles and has been a board member and an assistant coach and was also head coach of Adelaide. Thanks, Belinda. More at one o'clock. Thank you for that, Ali. 27 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And just picking up on the story Ali mentioned and we've been discussing in the first half of the Country Hour, the state government's decision to pay more than just over $180 million to eligible workers and surviving family members who'd taken part in the stolen wages legal action. In response to that, Mike says, let's not confuse the voice vote with this decision. The voice wasn't the answer to a specific problem. This government decision is warranted and long overdue. And Mick in Albany says, about time that the WA government is going to make reparation for wages lost. Well done, Premier Cook. It will never be enough, but it formally recognises that justice should prevail. The text is 0448 922 Between now and one o'clock, it's off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market. We'll take a look at the sandalwood industry, which has just had a boost, a combined uh, investment boost from the state and federal government to the tune of $600,000. And is it time for a new campaign for the red meat industry? We'll look at that between now and the news at one. Right now, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Joey Rawson with you today. Uh, Isn't it hot pretty much right across Western Australia this afternoon, Joey? Is that the story in a nutshell? Yeah, yeah, it is pretty hot. It's not so hot along the south coast, Belinda. Only um, 19 at Albany and 20 at Esperance, so not across the whole of the state, but... um, yeah, it's certainly the heat from the Kimberley and the Pilbara is certainly pushing further north, uh, further south, sorry. And tomorrow um, it's going to cause uh, a few problems because we've got a, a trough that uh, extends basically from the Pilbara um, offshore from the west coast and, and that's going to drag thunderstorms um, down from the northern parts of the state. Um, so those thunderstorms will extend basically from the eastern parts of the Pilbara and the Kimberley, all the way down past Newman, Mekithara, uh, areas like Dalwalnew and Mora, and even pushing you know, to the far southwest of the state, so uh, through that Margaret River region. Uh, the problem with these thunderstorms, Belinda, is um, we're not expecting much rain out of them, so um, yeah, they're quite high base, so by the time the rain from the thunderstorms hits the ground, it will most likely be evaporated by the hot conditions. Um, however, the lightning could reach the ground and hopefully doesn't cause any fire ignitions. The other problem we have with tomorrow, uh, especially around the Midwest region, so you know through Geraldton, Mullawa, Morawa, uh, Dalwallanui, even you know stretching a little bit further into the the lower west, is we've got you know temperatures around that 37 to nearly 40, really dry conditions and really windy conditions. So we're we're potentially going to be having a fire weather warning out for um, that area. And, um, yeah, that's uh, going to continue on Saturday as well. Um, 
across the Darling Scarp as well for tomorrow, especially tomorrow morning. The winds are going to be really strong, so uh, gusting up to 90 kilometres per hour, basically from around sunrise to about 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. And some of the foothill areas will get some of those uh, winds around that 90 kilometres per hour. So the Bureau does have a severe weather warning out for that. So, um, yeah, tomorrow is certainly interesting. And then as we track onto the weekend, um, that area of thunderstorms basically extends uh, again from you know, the Kimberley and, and the eastern parts of the Pilbara all the way down uh, south uh, through the central wheat belt, Great Southern, and nearly getting to the south coast. Um, at this stage, Albany looks like it's going to miss out, but it's a similar story. We're not expecting much rain to get to the ground, not rolling out. If things do line up, you know, getting a 5 to 10 millimetre isolated fall here and there, but mostly it will um, just be an area of active thunderstorms with not much rain reaching the ground. And and then tracking on to Sunday, that area just starts gradually moving out to the east over the goldfields and it still extends uh, towards Albany and over the great southern area. And then um, on Monday, it extends to more of the eastern districts. So uh, the next couple of days are a little bit interesting, Belinda, on the weather front. Yeah, it sounds like it. And then for the Southwest Land Division into next week, it it sort of uh, becomes quite a contrast. It cools off quite a bit. Yeah, it does cool off quite a fair bit. We've got that that trough that uh, moves out to the east, so we start going into more of that west-southwest cooler flow. The ocean's still pretty cool around the southwest, so as soon as those winds are coming off the ocean, things certainly cooling down a fair bit. And, uh, yeah, vice versa with as soon as the winds are off the land, it's, yeah, very hot. Mm. Now, any more detail for northern and eastern parts, or we've covered it off? Uh, Just a, a... bit of detail. Um, The thunderstorms through the Kimberley and through the eastern parts of the Pilbara are are becoming more broader. The area is increasing, so um, rainfall for those around 10 to 20 millimetres. So if it does land on fires, then it's potential to stop some of those uh, fires in the Kimberley. Um, But uh, yeah, that that will continue um, definitely for Friday and Saturday and also uh, Sunday and Monday, Belinda. And then the warnings this afternoon, Joey. Strong wind warnings um, through the Geraldton coast and the Gascoigne coast, as well as the um, Geograph Bay coast and Lewin coast. And the warning that I mentioned earlier on and east of the Darling Scarp, it's just a, a fine slither of um, the potential for damaging winds tomorrow morning. There'll be no weather associated with that. It's just going to be pure wind that's uh, hopefully not going to cause any problems. Joey, thank you for going through all those details. And in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, not much rain across the state. In northern and eastern forecast districts in the Kimberley, Siddons Creek had five, and that is it. 21 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Australia's resources sector is a major loser in the collapse of the Australian-EU trade deal, according to a mining industry advisor. On Monday, it was reported discussions between Australia and the European Union over the free trade agreement had broken down and would likely be on ice until 2025. While some in Australia's agriculture sector celebrated this news, mining industry advisor Philip Kirklechner sees the stalled negotiations as a massive loss. 
He says facilitating European investment into Australia's resources sector is a matter of urgency. I I thought it was quite shocking that such an important uh, negotiation would just fall apart. The European Union is a huge economy and there are huge mutual advantages in doing a series of trade deals. And it just seems that one sector of the economy is having a disproportionate effect uh, on something that is so important for us. What what do you see is so important within those deals? What would have been important for Australia? Well, first of all, we need to remind ourselves what is our competitive advantage in Australia? We have we're very rich in resources and resources are becoming scarcer around the world. So this is our competitive advantage. We also have, particularly in Western Australia, set up a regulatory framework that is very stable. We have a policy environment that is very conducive to exploration and development of mines. We had very good and strong relationships with markets around the world and investors in around the world that allowed us to build a very strong export capability. As as a result, Western Australia is really carrying the economy of Australia with iron ore being our nation's number one export product. Now, we, we cannot just rest on that. We have to think about the future. And there will come a time when China's steel production will come down. And we need to develop other areas. We need to think about future-oriented industries, such as industries that help us or help the world deal with climate change. And so critical minerals could be our next backbone of the Australian economy. And to that end, the uh, European Union is a huge market for it, but also a very important potential provider of capital. So do you see it that by having some kind of agreement in place, there would have been more encouragement for the EU to invest capital into Australia to then see some of these rare earths and and critical minerals mines projects come into fruition to then be able to supply the EU? Is it that sort of missing uh, agreement that may see the capital not flow into Australia? Exactly. So we need to recognize what what are our competitive advantages. And the the issue with minerals generally is that we we have a lot of these minerals around the globe, but if they're not in a secure location, they might as well be on the moon, right? And you've had situations around the world where uh, governments change, uh, you had uh, sovereign risk, especially in many African countries, but Western Australia is, is probably the world's most safest location. So we have a strong advantage and we should use that advantage in our negotiations with the European Union. We still have these rare earths, these critical minerals, and the EU still demands them. So why does why is it so important to have a free trade agreement in place in, in order to actually see sort of, I guess, the access of them? I think... What the Europeans probably are looking for is security of supply and free trade agreements can support regulation or protections, investor protections. These kind of protections could be part of such a trade agreement with the EU. 
Some of the people within the agricultural sector saw the discussions with, with the EU about this agreement and weren't comfortable with some of the inclusions to do with agriculture, so to do with naming rights of things like Prosecco and Feta, also um, potential changes to uh, farm practices around different chemical use and, and that kind of thing. Do you think that it's a, a, a fair trade-off for Australia to say no to some of those imposed uh, changes to farming practices, for example, and lose out on this agreement to do with the, the resources sector? The key, the key concept here is you need to concentrate on the important things. Uh, you've got to see the big picture and you've got to focus on your, your competitive advantages. You can't have everything. You, 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 you can't protect every sector of, of agriculture. That is just unrealistic. You've got to give something. And agriculture culture of all industries is very a very emotive area for people around the world. So you, you've got to pick your battles. You need to be careful that you don't unnecessarily waste political capital, that you unnecessarily waste negotiation and bargaining power by trading it away for uh, such emotive issues that really don't have that much economic value. And when you talk about critical minerals, whether it's for batteries or rare earths, you're talking about geopolitical security. So these are much bigger issues. Mining industry advisor Philip Kirk Lechner speaking to Michelle Stanley. 14 to 1 here on the Country Hour and shortly it's off to Mount Barker getting the results of the yarding and the prices at the cattle market today. First, though, let's have a talk about sandalwood. It smells good. And it does cost a lot of money. But getting the fragrant oil from the lucrative trees that are often growing in some of the state's most remote and harsh climates and then getting it out to the global market can be a difficult process. It's a challenge the state and federal governments are trying to address by investing $600,000 into the WA wild sandalwood sector over the next three years. Regional Development Minister Don Punch says the project is geared towards getting Aboriginal people into the industry. Aboriginal not-for-profit organisation K Farmer Dutchin Foundation will oversee the three-year project and Director Katina Law says WA is in a unique position to establish itself as a global leader. The sandalwood market is very much a sales-driven market and it, it, uh, we need to carefully protect our international market for Australian sandalwood. We are not the only sandalwood um, option available and so therefore we need to really distinguish ourselves as an ethical uh, supply chain and also the benefits that flow back to Aboriginal people from the harvest of our wood because what we're seeing in the international markets is that our customers or Dajun Sandalwood Oils customers really want to see that ethical supply chain. And that's our key point of difference from many of the other brands and types of sandalwood that are out there. So we need to emphasise that, grow that ethical supply chain. And that's part of this increasing of Aboriginal harvesting, will grow the supply of wood into that ethical supply chain. So it can be things like complying with labour market regulations, um, the type of accommodation that workers have. It's also to do with environmental practices, 
it's to do with giving back to community and how the benefits of the of the product are spread around. So there's, there's many different aspects to it. We aim to um, help Aboriginal people economically benefit from their sandalwood that might be growing on their native tidal lands. Um, and we also want to build resilient communities to support those, um, those harvesting arrangements. Katina Law from the Kay Farmer Dutchin Foundation and she was speaking to Andrew Chounding. 12 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Now, I want you to take a listen to this ad. You know it really well. They've become quite legendary and uh, every year everyone looks forward to the new one. So the message is clear, even for you backpackers. Roll out the barbie, ensure the gas bottle's filled, stack the fridge full of lamb and prepare the invitation list. So don't be un-Australian. Serve lamb on Australia Day. You know it makes sense. I'm Sam Kekovich. That is right, the summer lamb campaigns. They're known for being a bit fun, a bit creative and encouraging you to get together with friends and family for a barbecue. But with an oversupply forcing, well, not only lamb, but beef and goat prices down to unprofitable levels for farmers, is it time for the industry's own red meat marketing body to roll out a new promotion. Amy Phillips reports on how farmer contributions are spent. Every time an Australian farmer sells livestock, they're charged a levy to support marketing, research and development activities. And this year, it's meant a budget of $13 million for domestic marketing manager with Meat and Livestock Australia, Graham Yardy. And that will cover everything we do across all those channels. Packed with protein... Feed your everyday greatness with beef. Hi, Sam Burke, Corporate Chef for Meat and Livestock Australia. I'm here to show you creative ways of cooking Australian red meat over fire. Why? Because it's liberating. I love the smell of lamb in the morning. It does vary year to year. But when you put that into context, uh, you know, that is less than about point. 0.5% of, of the uh, turnover of the uh, industry. And so when you look at something like other big, you know, consumer products brands, they'll be spending, you know, 8 to 12%. While his team is best known for their lamb ads, the job of selling red meat is made somewhat easier by the fact Australians still love eating beef and lamb. You know, if we look at the top 10 meals that Australians eat, beef, can play a role in eight of them. You know, the only things that can't is sort of, you know, fish and chips and chicken and chips. And so all the other ones, whether it be pastas, stir fries, casseroles, those sorts of things, beef can absolutely be the choice of it. So we've just been making sure that people see that it's a really strong choice for people's midweek meals and it stays in the repertoire. Obviously, lamb is the thing that brings people together and that's always a big focus of our big summer lamb campaign. And but this year we've been focused on being much more frequent with our advertising communications through the year. So it's not just a big spike once a year. And we've been seeing fantastic growth in the volume of lamb being pushed through outside of summer, which we're happy with. This year, dry conditions have forced record numbers of livestock into abattoirs. It's also forced prices down. And Graham Yardy says it is allowing more people to put meat on their table. Obviously, the price is starting to come down at retail, and that's actually helping volume as well. So in the last four weeks, we've seen, you know, compared to last year, we've seen beef up 8%. 
and lamb up 20%. Lamb's premium to chicken has been floating around sort of 80% for the last sort of five years. But if we look at where it is uh, in the last month, it's it's at 50%. The last time lamb was, you know, that close to chicken in, in cost was 2014. So 10 years ago, we're talking. So this is a, you know, a very different scenario than we've faced for the last uh, five or six years. So, absolutely, you know, absolutely. So we're looking very closely at what we do and, you know, how we think about our promotional activities. Obviously, summer lamb is the is the next big thing off the uh, which is which is January, which is very much uh, in the works. But you know, we're looking at what other tactical things can we do with retailers to make sure that they've got enough stock weight at the shelf. They're doing everything in that last three feet, if you like, of purchase to make sure that the product is front and centre. But wait, where's the goat on my menu? Well, Meat and Livestock Australia says it's a challenge to promote it, with industry levies only bringing enough revenue to allocate approximately $100,000 from the 2022 to 2023 financial year budget. It's not something that southwest Queensland butcher Sean Radnidge from Charleville disagrees with. More than 200 people in his town are employed directly by a goat processor, and while they send huge volumes overseas, locals aren't keen to cook it at home. It varies and all depends on the customer. We do sell anywhere up to three to four goats, I would say, a month. Yeah, so I would say it all depends on what your, what your um, population is and, and we do see different markets, whether it's Asian Pacific nations that have moved to these areas that are looking for that product. But yes, we do. We do sell a little bit of goat. Meat and Livestock Australia are keen to overcome the low budget and Graham says are being targeted with their message. It's a fantastic product and it's, uh, it's rich in flavour, but the familiarity, people just aren't used to it. But also then, you know, it's the distribution of it. So processing capacity is, is, always, a, is always a challenge uh, these days. And so being able to ramp that up to a place where, you know, customers can get consistent supply of it to be able to promote it. So I think the opportunity is, you know, things like, you know, butchers and those sort of things that want to offer a broader array of things for their their clientele and, you know, their, their demographic around their doors. I think that's a, a really good opportunity. But I think, you know, we've been doing a bit of work this year. The idea was to highlight some of the food service restaurants that have got goat on the menu and really trying to push that a little bit through more through social media influences and, you know, it's sort of a grassroots way to encourage trial and and showcase the product. Graham Yardy, he's the Domestic Marketing Manager with Meat and Livestock Australia. And MLA has just released its annual report. It says producer levies basically stayed the same in the last financial year to a total of $97.7 million. Grass-fed cattle levy income fell 3.5% to $47.3 million while grain-fed cattle levies rose by 9.5% to $12.7 million. Taking a look at the lamb and mutton levies, they increased by 1.4% to a total of $37.1 million, while goat levies remained steady at $0.6 million. Four minutes to one. And later this month, the WA Premier Roger Cook is going to set off on a trade mission to China. It's a four-day mission and it marks the first official visit of the Premier to China and the first WA government mission to Sichuan province 
in China's southwest. There's going to be some high-level meetings going to be held with Chinese government stakeholders and industry leaders in both regions, Sichuan and Shanghai. And during the visit, the state government's going to promote future collaboration opportunities in areas such as tourism, international education and aviation. The Premier will also visit Shanghai, where he's set to meet key industry leaders in resources and aviation, as well as investors and leading stakeholders from the Chinese energy sector. China remains WA's largest trading partner, with over $158 billion of goods traded in 22-23. And that mission takes place from the 20th to the 24th of November. G'day, I'm Nick Grimm. Join me for the world today. Victorian police make an arrest in the case involving the mushroom poisoning deaths of three people in August. We'll bring you all the latest details. Russia unleashes its heaviest bombardment of Ukraine so far this year. Could it mark a new phase in the ongoing war? And wake up Jeff. Could the wiggles on high repeat provide the solution to one town's problem with rough sleepers? Or will it just become a political hot potato? Three minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Off to the market, the cattle market at Mount Barker, it's still going. Mostly yearlings and wieners being sold today. Tracy Kilner is there. Hi, Tracy. Can you run through the numbers and the prices so far? 1,957 yarded. That's up 179 from last week. A good quality yarding saw prices trend down again this week with fire... Feeder buyers again selective on weights and processes showing low demand. Heavier weight feeder calves eased 15 cents while calves weighing under 300 kilos showed no demand from restockers and backgrounders with the season drying off early. Heavy cows eased with processor demand while heavy bulls remained firm. Wiener steers sold from 150 to 292 cents. The heifers made from 88 to 192 Heavier weight yielding steers sold from 168 to 262 cents, while lighter weights made up to 274 cents a kilo. A large yarding of yielding heifers returned 136 to 212 cents a kilo. Grown steers eased 10 cents, returning 104 to 200 cents. Grown heifers sold from 130 to 158 cents, down 15 cents on last week. Heavy cows eased 10 cents, selling from 94 to 130 cents, averaging 114 cents a kilo, while the heavy bulls sold from 110 to 150 cents. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for that. And this just in from Fiona. Uh, regarding the price of lamb and meat and retailers, how about better prices to the farmer, treated like the paupers of the industry? Says Fiona, thank you for that. And earlier you heard from mining industry advisor Philip Kirkleckner talking about Australia's resources sector being a, a major loser in the collapse of that Australian EU trade deal. And while some in the ag sector have been celebrating the news that the trade deal is off, Philip Kirkleckner sees the stalled negotiations as a massive loss for the mining and resources sector. In response to that, Colin's been in touch to say the mining industry advisor, Philip Kirkleckner, failed to mention that farmers don't just dig up food and send it overseas once. He says they do it over and over again, so it's important to get the deal right. And this too from Andrew. Agriculture will be around long after mining leaves a big hole. The comments re-sacrificing agriculture to achieve an EU trade deal are rather self-centred, according to Andrew. Thank you for those texts. Uh, That's it for today. Thank you for being here on the ABC. Time for the news. One o'clock. 
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.